0: When you state an opinion that goes against what the establishment thinks and what money thinks, then people are going to ridicule you. Because the whole idea of having a unique idea is that in the millions of years humans have existed, no one has ever had that idea before. And and people say there's a cliche, you know, no idea is truly unique. That is just simply not true. There are some ideas that are very unique, I bring all this up because Dr. Stephen Gundry, who's a former cardiologist, really a very good cardiologist, but then he saw how much BS was in, really not the medical industry, but the health industry. He's done a lot of work and a lot of research on good nutritional habits, what are good foods to eat and why, and not only for dieting, but for living longer, for having more energy. How do you live a high quality of life? Food is energy. That's the purpose for food. It's not so that we can have something to eat while we watch Netflix. It's completely 100% for energy. And consequently, Dr. Gundry, who's come on before with The Plant Paradox, stating that not all plants are necessarily good for you. This book is called The Energy Paradox and how to eat to maximize your energy. I think that's an extremely important topic to get across. Without further ado, Dr. Stephen Gundry. Dr. Stephen Gundry, welcome back to the podcast. Previously, you were on for your recent book, The Plant Paradox. Now it's for The Energy Paradox. We'll talk about that in a second. Just want to remind people that The Plant Paradox was about a very your, your very unique take based on the research of your um, clients and your own research studies and so on about avoiding foods that contain what you call lectins. And it was very, it was eye-opening. It was like I didn't realize that, of course, plant. a lot of people eat, and I eat occasionally, You know, plant-based foods. And I have a, at least one kid of five who's all plant-based. And I never thought of it that plants need to avoid predators just like we do. So they emit this sort of poison called lectins. And it makes sense that that would also cause inflammation when humans eat it. And you trace a lot of your research studies back to the, the lectins that you talk about in the plant parrots. But now, we're on the energy paradox. A lot of people, including myself, occasionally feel by midday, lethargic, tired, fatigued. And it's sort of like random. When am I going to get energy? When I'm not going to get it. And the energy paradox is about this. You say that we should all have great energy, that it's not really a function of necessarily our age, which I thought it was you've been a doctor forever you got your (laughs) medical degree in 1977 according to wikipedia yeah
1: that's
0: true And forever
1: uh, you've done heart transplants right oh gosh yeah my partner and i dr leonard bailey invented infant and pediatric heart transplantation
0: can i ask a question about that yeah and then we'll get to the energy paradox so basically you have a baby in front of you okay presumably it's not moving because it's got anesthetics which I imagine most to to give an anesthetic to a baby must be a a complicated job all by itself because you don't want to kill the baby, but you don't want the baby to be conscious during the surgery. So that must be hard. And then you slice open the chest and you know, obviously where to slice. What happens? You take out the heart and put in a new heart. Like what happens?
1: Well, we have to put that baby uh, on a heart-lung machine and take over the work of the heart and lungs and oxygenate the blood so first we have to put tubes in and then you're right we actually take that heart out uh, cut it out and then we've gone uh, around the country to find you know another heart and this heart is about the size of a walnut just uh, so people can visualize that and then we have to stitch all the blood vessels back in, and uh, you know, hope for the best that once we release everything, that this heart starts up and takes over. And knock on wood, uh, and so it so does.
0: You have to stitch all the blood vessels back in. First off, everything you just said was like magic, and and that's the whole Arthur C. Clarke quote that in the future, what seems like magic today will just be technology. I'm paraphrasing. But first off, there's machines that perform the function of the heart. And I guess I sort of knew that, but I didn't really know that. That seems amazing into itself as well.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, and believe it or not, these machines were first utilized, invented in the late 1940s, early 1950s. And uh, they were pretty crude. uh, And there were a lot of problems with them and you know technology you know, obviously keeps getting better and better and i was actually the father of the modern way to protect the heart during heart surgery and more heart operations are done using my catheter the gundry retrograde cardioplegia cannula than any other system in the world
0: so. how does that work so is the idea that it kind of takes i mean what does it do does it like pump how does it pump the blood
1: Right. Uh Well, believe it or not, uh, my system, you know, n- normally when we're just plain old working on a heart, we have to cut off the blood supply to the heart to make it stop and work on it or work inside of it. And we would normally give it a cocktail of uh, ingredients to keep it happy during that time. And I invented a way of pumping this cocktail down the veins of the heart rather than the arteries of the heart, which kind of like giving the heart an enema, if you get the idea. And it actually worked much better than pumping it down the arteries of the heart.
0: But when you remove the heart, how does the machine, how did they figure out how to keep a body going with just a heart machine?
1: Well, it was, I mean, it's just, it's magical in a way. They had to develop a way to have oxygen go through a membrane into blood that was flowing by in another tube and have CO2 pass through the membrane out. And uh, now it's just, you know, ho-hum, put some tubes in, turn on the machine, and it's magic, like you say. That's
0: amazing. And this is just a random question, but I was having this discussion the other day. I feel if I went back in time a thousand years, I would be completely useless. We all think we're so smart because we're all so modern. And I would not be able to like make a light bulb, make a fire. I would not be able to make furniture. I wouldn't be able to do anything that we suppose. I couldn't make a computer. What do you think you would be able to do? Like, what would be your function that would show people, oh, we really need to not kill this guy. What would you take from the future if you went a thousand years back in time?
1: Hey maybe I'd be a barber surgeon and you know I do I do some bloodletting and um, you know I'd get rid of of humors and I maybe I'd probably still have a job way back then.
0: Yeah cuz I feel like with a doctor one thing you could do that's pretty simple is you could introduce people to germ theory. They didn't really know that germs kill people.
1: Right. It wasn't until you know Pasteur and Beauchamp actually proved that germs happened
0: but is there anything like amazing medical things that you would like, would you be able to save lives that would die back then?
1: Oh yeah. If I, you know, if I just went back with my tools right now, I could do some pretty impressive things. I'd, they'd, they'd probably make me, you know, King medicine man. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. You'd be like Merlin if you went to King Arthur's court, like, what, what would you be able to do? What, what amazing thing would you be able to do that they would be just shocked by?
1: Well, you know, the good news is we could, you know, get somebody really drunk with liquor so that he really wouldn't feel anything and we could take out their gallbladder, we could fix their hernia, we could uh, sew, you know, a limb back on that had been sliced off during jousting, and that'd be pretty miraculous.
0: Yeah, so I guess surgeons, as opposed to computer people, surgeons actually can do things that are real. And anyway, this has just been kind of like a pet peeve of mine is that I'm useless in general outside of my safe little habitats. Nobody's useless. Well, I'm I'm useful because I get to spread the message of people like yourself. So that's, but ah, I, can't, I can't do a podcast back a thousand years ago. But the, maybe I will be able to help people have more energy after this interview and after reading your book, certainly. So let's talk about that. And And a lot of what you say resonates with common sense that, of course, food gives us energy. That's the whole point of of food. Many people, we've become detached from that message by eating potato chips and things like that. But let's start from the beginning. What made you do this book and what was your results?
1: Well, I actually didn't plan to write this book. It wasn't part of, you know, my, what I was going to write about. But last year I was driving into Orange County, uh, south of LA to do a thing for a PBS station. And I got a call that this Person who was going to interview me wasn't going to make it in that day because she just didn't have it in her. Her energy levels were so low; she didn't have it in her to come in to work. Do you think that was real, or do you think it was just an excuse not to go to work? No, no, no. I think it was very real. And uh, I, fifty percent of my patient population, when I first see them, complain of there's a code called fatigue and malaise, and fifty percent of People that I see, for other reasons, also have fatigue. And so the fact that this millennial just didn't have it in her to come in for the interview really stuck with me. And I'm going, wow, this is more widespread than even I thought. And it it turns out that I started writing this pre-COVID. And even then, 60% of people in surveys say they're either tired or have fatigue or have low energy and in in other interviews i would say almost everybody now thanks to covid is sick and tired of being sick and tired you know the subtitle of the book is what to do when your get up and go is got up and gone you know to address what you were saying so many of us assume that our modern lifestyle however we wanted to find that pre or post or during covid is so stressful, is so demanding that it's normal to be tired, or normal, like you say, two o'clock in the afternoon. You got you know, you got to have a double espresso or an energy bar to get you through the rest of the day. And you know, I travel all over the world studying long-lived societies, and many of these, particularly primitive societies, don't have words for being tired or exhausted i followed sheep herders who are 90 years old up a hill and it's hard to keep up with these guys and the idea that you know let's take a break doesn't even resonate with these
0: people. They're 90 years old they're sheep herders and they're going up a hill what do you say is their real age in our terms?
1: Oh yeah I mean these guys act like they'd be you know 40 years of age I mean for instance as I as I talk about I'm I'm soon going to turn 71. I have far more. I look great for 71, I have to say. I I have far more energy than when I was 46. I really do. And why? Well, it's really all part of the book. I've figured out where energy has actually come from. And one of the really fascinating things uh, that I've mentioned before, but really resonates. So there's There's a study that was done out of Duke University a few years ago, and there's this uh, primitive hunter-gatherer tribe in Tanzania, Africa, called called the Hanzas. And the Hanzas literally hunt with bows and arrows. The men walk 8 to 10 miles every day. The women walk anywhere from 3 to 6 miles every day, gathering berries and digging up tubers. They're thin, they're fit, they really have no diseases. And so these researchers said, gee, I'll bet you if we measure the energy expenditure of this hunter-gatherer group and compare them to the energy expenditure of office workers, desk workers, I'll bet you we're going to be shocked that these Hanzas, you know, the reason they're so skinny and fit is that they're, you know, using up all this energy. Lo and behold, they found that the Hanzas were, you know, walking 10 miles a day use the same amount of energy as a desk worker who doesn't move. How how do you measure energy? You can actually look at calories consumed and then put them on a calorimeter and look at respiratory quotient, how much oxygen you burn, how much CO2 you produce. The conclusion was, well, guess what? We all make the exact same amount of energy, no matter how active we are, no matter how inactive we are. And so there. And, you know, I'm a researcher and I go, wait a minute, you know, that, that doesn't pass the sniff test at all. Uh, so, what's really going on? Well, in my work, we know that inflammation, and I think most people have heard about inflammation. Inflammation is basically a war that goes on in our body against enemies that come into us. For instance, if you caught the flu, the plain old flu, you would be incredibly tired, you'd be exhausted, you would hurt, your brain wouldn't work, you certainly wouldn't want to look at your computer, you might want a Netflix, some binge show, but you you feel awful. Well, that's inflammation, that's us warring against this flu virus. Now, in our case, in the desk workers, what we found and other people have found is that we have chronic inflammation from leaky gut.
0: We've discussed this, but I just wanna review. I hear the word inflammation everywhere now. Every doctor, every diet, every nutritionist is talking about inflammation. What exactly is that? Your cells in different organs are experiencing
1: an enemy. What's that enemy and what's inflammation? Okay, so inflammation is produced by our white blood cells, uh, our immune system. And these guys are basically, if you will, foot soldiers. And 80% of all of our white blood cells line our gut, line our intestines. And our intestines are actually the surface area of a tennis court. And everybody looks down and goes, wait a minute, there's no tennis court in there. But in fact, there is. And so imagine that 80% of your army is lining the walls of your gut and things can come through the walls of your gut that's why they're all down there bacteria come through the wall of your gut lectins which are these little nasty plant proteins actually make leaks make holes in the wall of your gut and food particles come across lectins come across bacteria come across so there's actually a constant war going on in in our abdomen that war consumes huge amount of energy, just like, for instance, your soldiers have got to be fed. And if there's a war, you're going to send the food and supplies to the troops who are fighting the war. And what that means, to use the war analogy, is that other people who are staying behind, like say our muscles or our brain, are going to be rationed because all this food and supplies have to go to the army. So again,
0: just to summarize, We sleep to recoup our energy. We wake up in the morning, supposedly with a full bucket of energy now for the day, but it's like a fixed amount and we get to spend it wisely. If your body is gonna spend your energy by just repairing itself all day, if it's inflamed, you'll be weaker in other areas. The same thing like if they're arguing on Twitter all day, you probably won't have energy for your real job. (laughs) That's true. That's an inflammation of a different sort, social media inflammation. Yeah,
1: that's a social media inflammation. But the point is well taken. If you're gonna devote all that energy to that social media, you're not gonna have the energy to do the other things you wanna do or the time. And that's actually what's happening to most of us. So, so,
0: so obviously things like, you know, dessert, I think specifically potato chips, there's like grease, the oils, the fried. It's probably just all inflammation. But how does inflammation, how, why is it inflammation? Like, how does that work? Great.
1: Well, it turns out that probably around 60 to 70% of all of the food we eat now isn't whole food anymore. It is processed and ultra processed food. And back in the good old days when we ate whole food, where we actually had a whole, let's just use a chicken breast, and a whole sweet potato or some whole broccoli, would actually take us a long time to digest those carbohydrates in the broccoli, the protein in the chicken breast, and the fat, the olive oil that we poured on it. Very slowly, And it would actually arrive at our energy-producing organelles called the mitochondria, where we actually make energy from food, uh, slowly. And it would actually come in in small bits. And the mitochondria are great at processing either protein, either carbohydrates, or fat. They can do all of that. But they like to do one part at a time. But now, because we've made processed foods, Give me an example, let's take your potato chip. So now we have carbohydrates from the potatoes and fat that they've been fried in. And they're instantly digestible. They no longer have to be broken down. And so our mitochondria, much like living in L.A., pretty much 24 hours a day have rush hour in the energy production line and it's this rush hour that literally energy production grinds to a halt. Now, uh, as anyone who lives in the LA area will tell you, rush hour literally happens constantly now, and it may take me an hour to go two miles on an LA freeway. Now, uh, now, and, and
0: again, is this because like because things like sugar and potato chips and all that, it's so broken down and processed on purpose so that it's easy to, quote unquote, easy to digest. Correct. Our brain is constantly thinking, hey, this is not normal. We need to eat things that digest. Slowly. We're already finished digesting, but the brain doesn't know that it doesn't digest all day anymore. So it says well, we need more potato chips now.
1: That's exactly right. What happens is the, this literally energy freeway just gets ground to a halt because of all this stuff we're trying to shove into it. And when your brain says, hey, I'm not getting any energy, um, you guys gotta you know, eat some more energy because I'm not getting any. So that makes us hungrier to go get more of the crap. And so two o'clock in the afternoon after your big lunch, everything's ground to a halt, rush hour, stop the traffic. Your brain says, hey, I'm not getting any energy. You need an energy bar. And of course that energy bar is just, you know, pure carbohydrates and fat and wham it just slams right into the backup that's already happening and so we just never actually get the energy flowing like we should and that brings up another point james so believe it or not studies in america show that the average american is now consuming food for 16 hours a day
0: think about that wait i don't understand because You have breakfast for like a half hour, lunch is like an hour, dinner is like an hour. We don't do
1: that anymore. We nibble snack, we grab things off a counter. There's really good research by Sachin Panda out of the Salk Institute in San Diego that has documented having people using apps that the average American eats 16 hours a day.
0: Okay, so let's say you're eating 16 hours a day, but you also, according to our studies, using social media six hours a day and watching television four hours a day and then sleeping eight hours a day. But I guess they're combining...
1: Oh, exactly. Alcohol, four See, of those things. we don't, most of us don't sit down for breakfast, lunch, and dinner uh, like we used to. We're munching on the go. We're grabbing something. We're eating out of our car on the way and we're talking into our social media account on the car. So we're constantly nibbling energy producing foods, but the nibbling of energy producing foods is actually stopping energy production.
0: Even if the last thing you eat is a really great source of energy, it has to wait in line while the full bag of potato chips is being digested. Why is junk food so easily digestible? Is it because it's been sliced up for us or
1: it's been made already? Yeah, it's been manipulated to be rapidly absorbed, and it's manipulated on purpose. In fact, believe it or not, the first pre-digested food that was ever advertised was advertised uh, 110 years ago. It was a breakfast food. I'd let you guess who actually advertised the first pre-digested meal. Mr. Kellogg. Mr. Kellogg, Kellogg's Corn Flakes was advertised as the first pre-digested meal. That's interesting, you call it pre-digested. So... That's what they called it. In other words, all the work was done for you. And so you will instantly absorb it. And that's so horrible for the way your system works.
0: So if Corn Flakes has 200 calories, but also let's, we haven't defined yet what good foods are, but let's say some really good food has 200 calories, What's the difference? Aren't I getting 200 calories either way? And I and this is a layup. I know the answer, but I'm, I'm letting you answer this.
1: <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, so the 200 calories of Kellogg's cornflakes, you're going to absorb basically 200 calories of sugar. And that sugar is actually going to literally run right into your mitochondria and slow things down. On the other hand, let's suppose I had you eat 200 calories of a sweet potato. Let's keep it a carbohydrate just for fun. That sweet potato is a complex starch, and that means lots of sugar molecules stuck together. And you have to produce enzymes to break all of these sugar molecules apart. And that takes time. You won't be able to break all those sugar molecules apart by the time that rest of the sweet potato gets down to your lower intestines, where your microbiome lives your gut buddies your friendly bacteria they want a lot of those starches for themselves these are called prebiotic fibers so in the process of eating 200 calories of sweet potatoes you're going to burn some energy doing the digestion and you're going to lose about 30 percent of all the calories in that sweet potato to your gut bacteria who are going to eat them and produce compounds that are called postbiotics that we can talk about in a minute. So that sweet potato, even though it's 200 calories, has nowhere near the calories of that 200 calories of cereal. Plus you fed friendly bacteria who are gonna eat a lot of those calories. Plus you had to use a lot of energy to do it. Is
0: that good using the energy to process it? Oh
1: brother, yeah one of the things that's been done is give human beings the exact same calorie amount in pre-digested food um, modern ultra processed food and the same calories in foods that you would have to digest and even though you both ate 200 calories for instance you the guy who got the pre-digested food absorbed number one far more of those calories directly And number two, didn't use up any energy in eating those calories. And so the net result in humans was that 200 calories of potato chips and cornflakes is horrible for putting on weight compared to 200 calories of a sweet potato.
0: I'm trying to understand the process. So basically when sugar comes in or some junk food or processed food, it's 200 calories but it's absorbed right away. What happens to that energy? Are we energetic for a short time or what's happening?
1: No, so what happens is, so the mitochondria uh, can only process so much energy, so many calories at a time. And the mitochondria don't like to get overworked. They don't like to get bombarded with, uh, let's use sugar for an example. They don't like to get bombarded. And so they actually put up resistance to all of this coming into the mitochondria and people hopefully now have heard of insulin resistance or pre-diabetes and it's literally mitochondria as i talk about in the book set up a wall to try to keep all of this sugar from getting into them and to come in slowly and they literally produce chemicals, uh, fats called ceramides. Primarily, we make them from sugary foods. We make them from fruit, believe it or not. We make them from high fructose corn syrup. And that's why somewhere between 60 and 80 percent of Americans are insulin resistant. Our mitochondria are trying to protect themselves from this constant bombardment of Easily digested.
0: So, what happens to the calories? What happens to the energy? What does the mitochondria? It's been bombarded. Does it just like say, "Hey, we're we're throwing you out. We're not using you as energy, even though your
1: calories." Yeah, we're we're going to store you as fat. Mm. And quite frankly, the more insulin. So, when you and I eat uh, cornflakes, we use that example. Your pancreas squirts out some insulin, the hormone that literally is a salesperson to all of your cells. And it knocks on the door of, say, your muscles. And they say, oh, you know, this guy just ate some great cornflakes. Look at all this great sugar. And open the door, muscles. I want to sell it to you. And the muscles go, are you kidding? We have moved all day. We don't need anything. We're full. Thanks a lot. Go sell someplace else. Well, insulin says, geez, I got to get rid of this sugar. I, You know, I'll get 12 of my friends with a battering ram and I'll try to shove it into the muscles. And the muscles, you know, no, there's no room in here. So, Insulin says, I got to get rid of this stuff. Uh, I know, I'll turn it into fat. And it turns out that Insulin says, you know, this guy will thank me someday because someday there won't be any cornflakes. There's going to be hard times. There'll be COVID. He doesn't have a job. And he's going to thank me for having all that fat. Well, unfortunately, we now live in basically 365 days of, of endless summer, endless food. And we just keep taking the food we eat that's arriving too quickly to our mitochondria to process, and we turn it into fat.
0: Do you feel this is a problem with the medical industry that basically the solution for diabetes as an example, I'm just using this as an example, is, hey, let's just give them more insulin since the body is, the insulin was so busy that it basically failed. Uh, Let's just give them more insulin so they can keep eating tiramisu at night or cake, instead of saying, hey, just don't eat as much sugar, and you won't tax the insulin, and your insulin will regrow, does the insulin regrow once it's gone, like from diabetes?
1: I've never met a uh, type 2 diabetic that I couldn't make normal by teaching them how to eat, and this book, The Energy Paradox, really gives a step-by-step way to not only get your energy back, but actually to make insulin levels fall to make your mitochondria happy again. And you're right, the medical profession, particularly early when I was being trained, that's what we did. We gave people insulin and that would bring down their blood sugar. But what we didn't know was that insulin was the fat storage hormone. And so the more insulin we gave these people, the fatter they got. And the last thing that they needed was more influence.
0: I have to say Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month I'm going to Cocoa Beach which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known... People, I had a friend who basically you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway business summit. And I was so excited because side by side with the business summit was the Norway chess summit where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours and they were, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So You want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? Zip Recruiter. Zip Recruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now, you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter and I got nonstop. Really, I was even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job. I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails, like "Hey, you're qualified for this or that." And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try zippercrewcom slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire.
1: But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything.
0: At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, or or whatever you want to call it. What do you do for energy? You have a lot of energy. I know you do. And I, I go up and down. I think some days I'm pretty good and some days I'm not particularly since the pandemic started, I would say I do a little too too many carbs slash processed carbs, like go to the bakery and get a pastry. Yeah. Um, so what I've been trying to do, given that I know I'm not going to be moving as much, I try to intermittent fast uh, to basically not overload the system. But I probably have been eating a, a little more junk food than I have normally have this past year.
1: Well, so the, the book really tries to teach people how to successfully, you want to call it intermittent fasting, call it time-controlled eating. But the, the evidence is it's overwhelming that the more we can actually shorten our eating window, the time we start eating in the morning and the time we stop eating in the evening, the more we can slowly shorten that. To about six to eight hours, the more, believe it or not, energy our mitochondria are capable of producing. And, and my, my folks hate for me to say this, you could actually occasionally get away with eating something that's really pretty not good for you. And this study, these studies have been confirmed in human trials. They've been confirmed in phenomenal mouse trials at the NIH. But Uh, Let me give you a great example of Italian athletes. So they took two groups of Italian athletes, cyclists. They gave them each the exact same calories per day to eat, uh, the exact same food. Everybody had to eat the same food. They did this for two months. One group had to eat all their calories in a 12-hour window. They breakfast at 8 o'clock, they lunch at 1, they finished dinner by 8 o'clock at night, a 12-hour window. The other group, they started uh, breakfast at one o'clock in the afternoon. They had lunch at four o'clock in the afternoon, and they had to finish dinner by eight o'clock. So they were basically a six to seven hour window. What happened to the two groups? They're eating the same food, the same calories. They're exercising exactly the same. The group that compressed their eating window lost weight. The other group didn't, eating the same amount of calories, the group that compressed their eating window, kept their muscle mass, and they had this marker of longevity called insulin-like growth factor one, IGF-1, obtain optimal numbers. So the lower your IGF-1, the longer you're gonna live and live well. The other group had none of of these effects. So just by compressing their eating window, uh, they were able to achieve that. that's what you want to do now, to say that, believe it or not, eighty percent of us are what's called metabolically inflexible or insulin resistance. And if I ask eighty percent of your listeners, uh, tomorrow I don't want you to eat lunch I want you to eat your first meal break fast at noon uh, and I want you to starve until then. eighty uh, percent of people would basically fall flat on their face. They'd have no energy, they'd have a headache, they'd have stomach pains, they go, I can't do this. And that's because we haven't been able to make the shift between burning sugar as a fuel and burning fat as a fuel. And that's through the six-week program in the Energy Paradox. What I do is, all right, let's say Monday morning, you eat breakfast at 7. When we start the program, on Monday, you're going to eat breakfast at 8. Yeah, you can wait an hour. Come on, that's not a big deal. On Tuesday, I want you to eat breakfast at nine. On Wednesday, I want you to eat breakfast at 10, and so on until Friday. And then we take the weekend off. It's free time. You don't have to do anything. The following week, we're gonna start breakfast at nine instead of eight like we did. And so each week, we're gonna go up one hour at a time. And by the time six weeks are over, we're going to break fast at noon and finish up around seven o'clock at night. And it'll be effortless to get there. It
0: makes so much sense to do it in a gradual way. I I remember, you know, it's very interesting for me doing this podcast. Like I've, I've had maybe a thousand guests and everybody's amazing. And I've learned so much. But I always notice, I kind of meta notice what I remember from even years. You know, some podcasts I forget afterwards. Some I remember. I, of course, remember our first one. Uh, very well, but there's one I did in 2014 where I remember the guest said to me that it was hard for him to switch from his really bad diet of Coca-Cola and potato chips and all this to he, he was becoming a vegan, and he explained to me it's because the food you eat creates you know organic bacteria in your gut that becomes hungry for that food, so when you first make if the switch if you make it too fast that gut bacteria is still alive and is going to be very, very upset.
1: Oh, no, that's absolutely true. And I talk about it in all my books, including The Energy Paradox, you yes. essentially have two sets of bacteria, what I call the gut buddies, the good guys, and the gang members. And the gang members, like you talk about, they want simple sugar and they want fats, and that's what they live on. And we now know that there is a communication system between your gut bacteria and your brain and these gang members actually send messages to your brain that hey buddy you know you better get me a croissant and you know uh, a tub of lard uh, or that's my gonna- gut bacteria is yelling that right now yeah there you go and you better get it for me but what's been shown in my clinic and other clinics is that if it takes about three days to get the gang members to leave basically starve them to death and give the gut buddies what they want. And then the gut buddies in turn, the good guys, they start sending messages to your brain going, wow, you know, uh, if I need a salad, okay? I really need a salad. I need you to find me a salad. And I'll have these meat and potato guys, you know, in my clinics come in. They're doc, don't worry about it. There's no way I'm ever gonna eat a salad. Just don't waste your time. I see them a month later and they say, I don't know what's happened to me. If I don't get a salad, you know, I'm going to kill somebody. I said, "That's not me." Well, it turns out it's their bacteria that have taken over the rules and taken over their brain, and that's actually what's so exciting about this book. Uh, that we now know, we can measure those compounds that do this. We we've always conjectured that there was this text message system, that you know. Well, we know it. We know it exists, but we can't measure it. And in the book, we talk about postbiotics, which is the language that's been discovered between our gut buddies and our brain and our mitochondria. And the the discovery of this language is as exciting as the breaking of the Enigma code in World War II, the German code. I mean, it's that exciting that it actually won the Nobel Prize for medicine, the discovery of this language between these one-cell little organisms And us and our mitochondria, and they're called postbiotics.
0: You know, you discuss this a lot about this in the book, but like, what do you do personally to kind of up the good guys in the postbiotics and suppress the bad guys? Obviously, uh, the food you eat is a lot of that, but uh, yeah, just talk about that. Like, what's what is the food you eat? What do you personally do?
1: Great. So, as far as I know, I'm the first person to write about time-controlled uh, eating, intermittent fasting, back in my first book in 2006. The, the well, Diet Revolution? Yeah. Um, and I actually had a whole chapter on intermittent fasting that my editor said, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard of. This is, this is crazy. No one's going to believe you, and I'll give you two pages to make your case, but everybody, you'll, you know, that's crazy. I said, no, it's not crazy. I've been doing this, uh, I started doing this in 2000. From January through June every year, I eat one meal a day. I eat all my calories from 6 to 8 o'clock at night. So 22 out of 24 hours during the week, I'm fasting. I'm not eating. So no breakfast, no lunch, and I eat all my calories in two hours. And that's called the eat one meal a day or in the book, EOMAD. And now, I didn't start off doing that. I started off by actually doing exactly what is in the book. It's just gradually increasing the time I start eating. And the cool thing about it is if you do it gradually, there is no hunger. There's no such thing. I'm not hungry now, and it's you know coming on 11 o'clock, you know, my time. And I haven't eaten anything. And I won't eat lunch. Then I'll eat dinner later on today. But you gotta get there slowly it's like going to the gym and starting a, a new exercise routine um you know i'm not going to go bench press 400 pounds I, if i tried to bench press 400 pounds you know i cut my neck
0: off and... if, if someone asked you for a breakfast meeting what do you do at the
1: breakfast meeting black coffee or tea all right no toast or anything oh toast that's poison come on it's pure sugar come on i know but i
0: love toast i always tell people I don't know how to use my kitchen but i'm i'm a great toaster like i know how to use the toaster really well
1: (laughs) believe it or not strange but true toasting bread actually slows it absorption rate and there's so there's actually a true reason why if you had to eat bread and i'm not telling you to eat bread james toast it and if you have to eat bread sourdough instead of any other and certainly not whole wheat please
0: really and what about all these like fancy
1: seven grain things that's even more poisonous grains have the highest lectin content of any food if you want a leaky gut if you want inflammation please eat your whole grain bread and your know, seven grain bread just don't do it
0: and speaking of remembering things from podcasts i very clearly remember the visual image you have of the lectins are, I guess bigger than other cells that pass in and out of the gut so they pierce the the guts the insides of your intestines and, and that's what causes this leaky gut
1: yeah I mean if you had asked me 15 years ago with my first book what I thought about leaky gut I I would have told you it was pseudoscience but now thanks to work by Dr. Visano from Harvard and others in my clinics we know that Almost everyone with low energy and certainly anyone with a pre-existing condition, like heart disease, like diabetes, like high blood pressure, uh, has leaky gut. Hippocrates, 2,500 years ago, the father of medicine said, all disease begins in the gut. And the guy was right. And you know, he didn't have all our fancy tests. He just knew that everything happens in the gut.
0: Obviously, I think it's almost common sense. What foods, at a very broad level, junk foods bad. <laughs> most car- process most processed carbs are "quote unquote" bad, and I I don't mean to simplify so much, but I'm just thinking everybody gets so in the in the woods with these foods are good, these foods are not. Everyone's recommending different things, and even you know I would say uh, this confusion arises a little with you when I think, Oh my gosh, which plants have lectins? I thought this plant was good, but not this plant. Like, so that it's hard to keep track of everything, but just on a very broad level salads, good organic stuff, good things that were just pulled out of the ground and cleaned and served to you are probably pretty good.
1: Yeah. Roots are great for you. Tubers are great for you. Have some radishes, have some parsnips, have some sweet potatoes. Um, Any, you know, the cruciferous vegetables like broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts, they're fantastic for you.
0: Oh, and I recently Uh, read that broccoli was not so good, but it might have been because of, it's like a very starchy vegetable. And again, everybody says different things, but you're saying broccoli, good. Yeah.
1: Again, one of the things that uh, I introduce in this book that I think puts this battle between oh you should be eating you know basically a a carbohydrate based diet or you should be eating a carnivore diet where all you eat is meat or you should be eating an 80% fat diet a, a ketogenic diet and you go well wait a minute you know you guys all can't be right you know which is it well what I've written about in previous books and I really go into this in this book is one of the things that is, is in common with all these various weird diets is in general they're telling you you would eat one sort of uh, food in other words mostly carbohydrates mostly protein mostly fat and what i show in the book is if you use what i call a mono diet your mitochondria have only one food to work with at a time. And they're actually pretty good about doing that. But most of our processed food has sugars, fats, and proteins all clumped into one. And it again, whacks into our mitochondria. So in the book, the first meal of the day, the break fast, I actually asked people to have a mono meal. In other words, if you want, puffed millet cereal with almond milk as your break fast, go for it. If you want Canadian bacon with, yeah. egg, with egg whites, go for it. If you want an avocado cut in half with egg yolks in the middle under a broiler and pour olive oil on it, mm. a pure fat meal, go for it. If you want to change up every day, go for it. And people go, wait a minute. You mean I can have, you know, I can interchange? And I say, yeah, as long as you choose one energy substance, your mitochondria will think you're just the best person in the world.
0: Although you mentioned earlier that there's different
1: mitochondria for different nutrients, right? Um, No, no, the mitochondria have to use the nutrients in a totally different way. So there's, there's a pathway to turn protein into energy. There's a pathway to turn fat into energy and there's a pathway to turn sugar glucose into energy and there's in the mitochondria and they're slightly different mitochondria have to be able to switch gears and in our old time traditional diets where we all ate whole foods they had plenty of time to switch gears and believe it or not we didn't ever used to eat 16 hours a day in fact Breakfast, break fast, breakfast is a very modern uh, thing. It actually started in the Industrial Revolution uh, in the late 1900s, where workers would go to a factory. And they weren't given lunch breaks. They didn't have any mandatory, you know, oh, you need 15 minutes of break. They had to work all the way through the day. And so it got the tradition of, well, you better have something to eat before you go lock in the factory for the next 14 hours. And so breakfast was actually a you know uh, was a brand new meal. The French have no word for breakfast. Dejeuner is their first meal. They had to invent petit dejeuner for the tourists. Mm-hmm. The, the Hadzas don't eat breakfast. I mean, you really think they you know crawl out of their you know hut and say what's for breakfast? There isn't any breakfast. There's no well, storage system.
0: And it, yeah, it makes sense because. I guess, you know, let's take 40,000 years ago, you could only eat if you found food that day. And so probably some days you found. Yeah. So, and that might, and that's a a very natural, almost organic to use the word intermittent fasting. That's what it was. You ate when you had food.
1: But for every meal, should it be a mono meal or? No. So, what I like to do, uh, so mono meals get into trouble because in general, they don't have enough fiber to feed the good guys the probiotics the gut buddies and so the gut buddies can't make these postbiotics and postbiotics are these gases and also short chain fatty acids like butyrate that actually turbocharge your mitochondria actually tell them to get up and go make more energy and that's one of the failures of so many of these diets, whether it's a carnivore diet, whether it's a keto diet, or whether it's a high-carbohydrate diet, is that they don't feed our gut buddies the food they need. So you, let me... need,
0: you need to basically be like a flexitarian, like yeah. eat a little bit of everything except yeah. for the processed stuff.
1: Yep. You know, what I don't
0: understand is, and, and everybody takes the simple answer that, oh, this is the big food industry made the food pyramid, but the food pyramid, if you look at it now, like the original food pyramid is so bad for you based on what we know now. Like I think there's like six servings of pasta a day recommended in the food pyramid, five glasses of milk, when most people are lactose intolerant depending on your ethnicity and so on. What made modern medicine veer so much from health?
1: Sickness is good for business. I, um, recently had dr kessler who was the head of the fda when the last food labeling thing was made and when he put down you know the amount of sugar in a product uh, he was called into the oval office as he tells it and there was the secretary of agriculture and a number of the big food giants and they said Uh, we're sorry, you cannot put that on a label. You cannot tell people how much sugar is in this product. And he said, but but wait a minute, that's how much sugar is in this product? They said, no, you cannot tell them that. And you're going to have to design that label in a way to hide where the sugar is. And he uses the example of a bagel. And he says, okay, you look at the bagel, it's got 330 calories. And you look at sugars and it says zero sugars. And you go... Oh, there's a healthy food for me. I'm watching my sugar. He says, you got to look at total carbohydrates. And there's 33 grams of carbohydrates. And then you look underneath and there's fiber. There's no fiber. He says, so instead of being zero sugar, there's actually 33 grams of sugar. Now, to put that in perspective, there's four grams of carbohydrates in a teaspoon of sugar. So you do a little math. So there's over eight teaspoons of pure sugar in that bagel, and it's not on the label.
0: Oh, my gosh. So we've been duped. So when he said to them, though, so he's in the Oval Office, which is people who care about the U.S. supposedly. And he said to them, listen, this is for everybody. This is for the health of 300 million people. Did they respond? (laughs)
1: They basically say how naive you are. I mean, as I wrote about in, in one of my previous books, simultaneously with Michelle Obama having you know a victory garden in the, in the White House and teaching kids how to grow gardens and teaching kids how to eat low fat, simultaneously the Department of Agriculture was doing deals with Domino's Pizza, to pay for $100 million of free advertising if Domino's would double the amount of cheese in their pizzas. And they bragged about it because they were supporting America's dairy farmers at the same time Michelle Obama was telling kids to eat their vegetables and please cut back on the source of fats. So it's, out of one mouth and into another. And that's the dichotomy of modern big food and big government.
0: This is such a change in, I mean, of course, many people have many changes in career, but you were, you know, doing these heart transplants and you were, you know, you were the best in the area. I mean, you were doing these incredible surgeries and saving lives. And of course you're doing great things now. What made you though, switch fully Like what's your career like right now? What do you, what do you do? What do you do for a living?
1: (laughs) So I, I see patients six days a week in my two clinics and about 78% of my patients have autoimmune diseases that they've been to the best of the best around the country and the world. And they're still there. And knock on wood, we're about 90% successful in reversing any autoimmune disease that, that walks through the door. And, then on Fridays, I'm at Gundry MD, my supplement and uh, food company, and I'm always you know coming up with new ideas on food that's going to keep people away from people like me. Um, you know, I just you know my nickname is No More Mister Knife Guy. Uh, <laughs> Why did you, you know, switch to this from from heart surgery? I watched a guy over 21 years ago now, 22 years ago. Rever- who I call Big Ed in, in all my books, um, big, giant, fat, forty-eight-year-old guy uh, from Miami, by the way, and he had inoperable coronary artery disease. Every blood vessel was clogged up. You couldn't put stents in. You couldn't do bypass. And guys like him would go around the country looking for idiots like me who would take him on. And you know there were eh, a handful of us, and they'd make a circuit around the country and. I'd often be at the end of the circuit. So, Big Ed comes into my office uh, after six months of trying to find some idiot to operate on him. And I look at his angiogram, the catheterization of his heart, and I go, You know, I'm not going to help you. Everybody else is right. They're, you know, they're right. You're, I'm not going to do you any good. He says, Well, look, you know, I've been on a diet and I've lost 45 pounds in the last six months. And I went to a health food store and I've been taking all these supplements. He said, Maybe I did something in here. And I'm, you know, I'm scratching my professor beard going, well, you know, good for you for losing weight, uh, but that's not going to do anything in here. And I know what you did with all those supplements. You made expensive urine, which is what I really believed back then. And he said, well, come on. Why don't we get a new angiogram, a new catheterization? Uh, let's see. I go, ah, don't get your hopes up. So we do. This guy, in six months' time, has cleaned out 50% of the blockages in his heart. Wow. 50%. They're gone.
0: And that's from from switching away from processed
1: foods. And and, taking a bunch of cool supplements.
0: Well, what supplements would would you recommend?
1: So, uh, and I've got a whole list in the book. Yes. Uh, Number one, everybody, everybody, everybody's got to take vitamin D3. We are now, there are 17 different studies showing the higher your vitamin D level, the more protected you are from COVID. And if you catch COVID, it will be a mild illness.
0: When, when's it too much vitamin D? Like, when do you just, as you say, have expensive urine of vitamin D? Like, I, I so, take ten thousand IU a day. Is that too much? Is that no, too little?
1: No, no. I, I take. I 10, never go outdoors. Yeah, I take ten thousand a day. Eighty percent of Southern Californians are vitamin D deficient, hmm. even though we get sunshine all the time. Uh, the University of California, San Diego, thinks the average American should take ten thousand IU's of vitamin D three every day Uh, it's one of the best anti-cancer uh supplements there are and let's not be confused vitamin d is a hormone it's actually not a vitamin at all and it's essential for so many things particularly for leaky gut I, i can't begin to tell you how important it is the other thing that almost everybody should get is fish oil now, most fish oil is molecularly distilled now. That means there's no heavy metals. But the important part of fish oil is called DHA. And you want to get about a thousand milligrams of DHA per day. Your brain is about 70% fat. So if your kids call, oh daddy, you're a fat head, you know, I'll back them. And half of the fat in your brain is DHA. And as I showed in the longevity paradox, if you look at people as they age, people who have the highest omega-3 index, which is a way of measuring DHA and EPA in your blood, have the biggest brains and the biggest areas of memory. And people who have the lowest omega-3 index as they age have the most shrunken brains and the smallest areas of memory. So these
0: are amazing studies. You would think if somebody heard that study, they would go to the local health food store and just get like a ton of DHA. And and yet the studies aren't in in the news or people don't get them or what's the story?
1: These stories are bad for business. Mm. Remember, sickness is good for business. I'll give you an example. A number of years ago, I was asked to consult with some major manufacturers in a fairly large Midwestern city, and I won't tell you where it is, because uh, that would give Chicago away. uh Close by Chicago, as a matter of fact. And these guys wanted me to come and institute a uh, an eating program, a healthcare program, in their uh, businesses. And I go, well, gee whiz, you know, you've got an amazing set of medical centers here in town, and you got a medical school in town, why don't you go work with them? That would be such an obvious choice. You don't need me. And they said, Oh, we did that. And we met with them. And I said, Yeah. And they said, Are you kidding? Why would we want to teach your you know, your employees to be healthy? We're in the sickness business. It may, you know, it may say health center, you know, on the side of the building. You gotta understand we're in the sickness business. And why would we ruin our business? It's true, true story. I, I believe it. And, uh, it's, it's, it's always disturbing
0: to me like how little good information is out there and how hard it is to curate it. I mean, and again, I've had like dozens of doctors, nutritionists and so on, on the podcast and, and a lot of conflicting results, but I always, I'm so grateful when you're on the podcast. Um, do supplement, a lot of, a lot of doctors say supplements don't work at all. Like, like you used to say, like, is there a danger that you just eat it
1: and it doesn't digest properly? And quite frankly, the longer I've been at this, the more impressed I am with the the power of properly chosen supplements to enhance your health. And I, I go into that in each book, why supplements are important. But we're beginning to realize that particularly supplements that contain what are called polyphenols. And how do you remember that? polywanaphenol is the way to remember it.
0: Is it. That that's, that's really not a helpful way to remember it, but I'll, I'll go with it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Polywana cracker, <laughs> polyphenol.
0: I understand, I understand, uh, but so,
1: just, it's okay. So, <laughs> anyhow, polyphenols, for instance, red wine has polyphenols. Um, dark chocolate has polyphenols. Coffee has polyphenols. Tea has polyphenols. And in concentrated form, I've published papers looking at people's flexibility in their blood vessels and change the polyphenols, their blood vessels get more flexible. Take the polyphenols away, their blood vessels get stiff. We've looked at people who have sticky blood vessels and we give them polyphenols and their blood vessels get lined with Teflon. We take the polyphenols away from them, their blood vessels become sticky again like flypaper. What supplements are the best for polyphenols? Well, so you can eat your polyphenols, believe it or not. But if you wanted a couple that I've studied uh, in patients, grape seed extract is one of them. And picnogenol, French maritime tree bark. It used to be patented, but now you can buy it. Uh, and we've published data. The, these two do remarkable things to the lining of your blood vessels. So that's that- just an example.
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't take those. I should probably take them. I take, yeah. I take zinc chelate. Is that good?
1: Yeah, but don't take too much. We only need about 30 to 50 milligrams of zinc. Zinc has to be balanced with copper, and you can really kind of screw up that ratio if you take too much zinc.
0: Uh, and I've also heard you shouldn't take too much vitamin C.
1: Well, vitamin C, unfortunately, is a water-soluble vitamin, and we excrete most of our vitamin C in two to three hours after we take it. And so if you're going to take vitamin C, and I highly recommend it, you should take time to release vitamin C and take a thousand milligrams twice a day. And that'll keep you with a nice low level of vitamin C. Wow. Vitamin C. We're one oh. of the few animals that don't manufacture our own vitamin C. Us and guinea pigs and monkeys.
0: Let me ask you an off the wall question. I wonder if, given that we've used science to kind of patch up the medical industry for so many decades. I wonder if there's going to be a next generation of that where somebody says, okay, let's take some stem cells, turn it into mitochondria, compl- just just quadruple everybody's mitochondria so that they can start processing um, all, the, all the processed foods much better. Could that well, happen?
1: You don't need any of that. Uh, if you follow my book, you will quadruple your mitochondria virtually in a few weeks. Uh, the book is how to make more mitochondria. So you don't need stem cells to do that. You just need to tell your current mitochondria to make more of themselves, and the book shows you how to do that.
0: Well, you know, again, Dr. Gundry, such an excellent book, and it really is a great companion book to the to the plant paradox, which is what we talked about the last time. Uh, you came on the podcast. This is the energy paradox. What to do when your get up and go has got up. And And
1: gone. And has got up and (laughs) gone.
0: Yeah. It's so valuable. We only live one life and why waste a moment of it? Energy is such an important concept. Uh, Of course, it starts with food. It goes into how you live your life emotionally, creatively, and so on. But food is the base of all. You, You can't start a business if you're sick. Or it'll be harder you'll use you'll need more energy than you have and how many hours a night do you sleep
1: i try to get about seven hours of sleep and do quite well at all right that's good i try to get
0: 12 but <laughs>
1: <laughs> we'll see i but- gotta get up and see patients come on i gotta take my three dogs for a run so you know i'm stuck oh and by the way get a dog if you want more energy uh get a dog yeah
0: yeah. Uh, Jay, the producer who's listening in, uh, he has a dog. I have I have a Yorkie and my kids take care of it. It's very small. Oh, really
1: I had a Yorkie, Fanny Fufu, Loved that dog. And she would actually run 10Ks with me. Uh, hilarious. She literally kind of floated off the ground.
0: They have a lot of energy. Great well, uh, Dr. Gundry, thanks again so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for writing this book, The Energy Paradox. It's really critical in this time, this day and age. And I appreciate, once again, you coming on the podcast.
1: James, thanks a lot. And for your listeners, just remember, fatigue is not your fate.